there is no way to rule innocent men. The only power any government has is the power to crack down on criminals. Well, when there aren't enough criminals, one makes them. One declares so many things a crime that it becomes impossible for men to live without breaking laws, and so they are forced to embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death. No, no save Riley. <laughs> Take her to the moon for me, okay? Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where we accept our unavoidably racist hearing. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is Yasin Mescot, which is definitely the wrong way to pronounce it, because again, I have racist ears. Yasin is a public defender and an infrequent host of the Bailey podcast. He tends to argue on various platforms for a anarchist perspective. He writes on Substack as well as for Jesse Singles newsletter and on topics related to criminal ju- the criminal justice system as well as some of the issues in the culture war. Um, his articles include 11 magic words and the very baity named I am here because of dumb luck. Yasin, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello the void and if you uh Want to know how to actually pronounce my name instead of like a racist? Please. It's uh, yeah, Yasin Meshot. But mm. good luck with that. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm not going to get there. I'm not even going to try. I just I don't I don't have the capacity. I can't even hear the difference when I try to say it myself. It's terrible. <laughs> it's I was always bad <sighs> at foreign languages. You know, yeah, I'm I'm not even a good enough Jew to be able to do the 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 hawks properly. If I'm being right. honest, that's that's I think that's one of the prime linguistic sounds of of hebrew right it's the clearing your throat yes for sure yeah yeah it's 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 like the basic sound of yiddish i think pretty much all Mm. of yiddish is centered around that uh you know it's just the way it is it's the way of our people so yasin i really appreciate you coming on to chat we got put in touch via some mutuals and i was enjoying your content and i wanted to kind of ask you some questions about your experiences as a public defender and some of the things you've written about that. And of course, I have to ask a little bit about luck there at the end, but let's just start off with like your background and like what brought you to being a public defender. Well, if if your theme is going to be luck, you're going to see a lot of of that at play. Uh, I never had you want to pl- any... a ple- appease me. That's the way to do it. Go for it. I know. I, I didn't know I was I was catering to to such a captive audience on that front. So first of all, th- thanks for hosting me. Uh, I love to be embraced by the void. And uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of how I got started as a public defender, it was com- I would say completely random. I I went to law school. I had some ideations to be involved in broadly speaking advocacy for civil liberties. And one of my first jobs with, was with the ACLU, which I was I felt really lucky to have landed such a gig early on. But after that, I was I was actually unemployed for a really long time. Uh, I just mm-hmm. couldn't find any work. I couldn't make any edgeway. I tried to back out of law completely because I was just really just fucking depressed. And 
didn't know what else I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so I had these kind of like fits and starts where I'm like, okay, maybe I shouldn't do law anymore. I'll go back to school or something. And or maybe I'll get an economics PhD uh, or something to that effect. And it, it was always uh, the thing that brought me back was, I think the first time was when I, uh, a friend of a friend said, hey, like my public defense agency is hiring. Do you want to work, uh, uh, apply? Uh, mm -hmm. And so I did and like got the job, uh, but I only worked there temporarily. Uh, and it wasn't until like a random Reddit comment uh, where I, I was posting, it's like, hey, I don't know what to do as a, as a lawyer. Uh, someone suggested just start your own solo practice. Uh, and put it down on your resume, even if you don't intend to do anything with it. And if you're asked, just be honest and say, yeah, like I started my own solo practice. It's going slow, uh, but uh, I'm working to building it up. At least it shows like some proactive uh, energy. And I did that purely on paper. But then while I had it, I thought, well, I have a practice. I paid the $40 business license. Why not get some uh, clients from the county for public defense, since I have some experience. And that's that's exactly how I started. It was just like, well, I might as well make some money. Uh, but then I found out I, I I really enjoy it. I'm really good at it, if I, if I do say so myself. And mm -hmm. uh, I get, uh, because I'm technically a private attorney, but 100% of my caseload is public defense, I get the best of both worlds. I get flexibility and street cred. Interesting. So... <laughs> What what brought you to law even sort of before you ended up in that like track down that kind of path? How did you know, like, why did you, you know, want to do legal work at all in particular? I wanted to start countries in the middle of the ocean. Cool. Tell me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a good hook. I'm, I'm interested. Uh, so uh, I've always had libertarian proclivities. I just say I'm an anarchist with libertarian proclivities. I went to uh, studied economics at George Mason under Brian Kaplan, Robin Hanson, and a, and a bunch of others. And I recall uh, it was uh, the son of the grandson of uh, Milton Friedman, Patrick Friedman. This was a while back. He uh, he started the, some organization about uh, seasteading, where the goal is uh, if you wanted to start your own country with your own ideas, with your own vastly different policy perspective, you had no viable way to uh, effectuate that 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 vision anywhere mm -hmm. on land because every almost every piece of land is uh -huh. under the sovereign authority of some country. So your options are like win an election, stage a coup, or launch a military invasion, which has a, a shit ton of problems on its own. Except by, uh, by virtue of international treaty, the open ocean is not owned by anyone. So the idea is you go out into the ocean, create your mm -hmm. own country, and that will let you experiment in the same way that people talk about the United States as kind of like 50 laboratories of democracy. If you were out in the ocean, you could experiment with whatever wild idea that you wanted. And the metric, one of the potential metrics at least, is mm -hmm. how many people would migrate to your specific country. That would give you a good sense of, is this better than the, the status quo? Okay. So I wasn't planning to go diving straight into the anarchism, <laughs> but since you brought this up and we did just cover it over on Philosophers in Space as well, I... I'm very curious about this. I, I was going, I was planning to give you shit because you said you're an ANCAP or at least you're sympathetic to the ANCAPs, even though like you're, you're primarily, you know, uh, more and more and than cap, let's say, um, mm -hmm. you know, my question was going to sort of be, 
in what way is your worldview not like Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, where it's just like a bunch of, you know, individual <laughs> capitalist society, you know, little micro communes and like a boat going around with a bunch of people strapped onto it? Like, but you're you're literally just saying you actually believe Snow Crash, but unironically, it sounds like, or that at least you yeah, did. Yeah, you're at some lucky point. that I actually I actually read and enjoyed Snow Crash. Okay. I, I I bring up Snow Crash as an example of uh, of what this could look like. There's In a, a good difference way. with you think how. It's a good thing. Yes, but but there's a difference in the in the circumstances in Snow Crash. Snow Crash it, it just turned into like these kind of like balkanized fiefdoms that were run by leftovers of uh, the old the ancient government. Um, like you basically like um, uh, what is it? Gated communities right. that were run by XCIA agents and shit like that. Right. The, or the big difference. Yeah, whatever. Tajikistan t- taxi drivers. The the big difference is that um, the the no the, the dynamic behind. Uh, venturing out into the ocean is that it's just so big that you always have a chance to leave. So you, that's one of the prime benefits that Patrick Friedman talked about is that the ability to float away so that you're not locked in, you're not landlocked into the specific uh, neighborhood and to the specific adjacency to whatever uh, rivals that you might have. The idea is that you always float away. And um, there's a, there's a running theme in uh, libertarianism that talks about the frontier uh, I, I don't know actually how true it is, but in terms of mythology, it's it's ca- captivating. The idea is that uh, the West, the Western part of the United States is more libertarian than the East. And uh, some people attribute that to the idea that when you're out into the frontier, you have to be more reliant on yourself rather than a centralized government. And people were propelled to move ever further West uh, to achieve that idea, you know, setting aside Native American conquest and whatever. We, sure. we can just sweep that under the rug. Uh, but the as long as you have a frontier, uh, or at least like the threat of a frontier, then that takes away the pressure for how oppressive uh, any particular government can be on you. Because the risk of, uh, of any government uh, pushing too hard is that their people will walk away. Mm. Uh, so the, the existence of a frontier or an exit valve is often just as important as people actually leaving. As long as you have the threat that you could potentially leave, that potentially would uh, that would ameliorate some of the issues. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So it's more you're, you're more sympathetic, really, to a kind of anarchism like what Ian Banks comes up with in the colony series or the culture series, where it's like when you're out in space, there's so much space that like literally there's you can just leave, you can just go in a different ship or something like that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, I'm not familiar with Ian uh, Banks uh, specifically, but uh, I always yeah, say, I don't, like, I'll, I'll switch out of the sci-fi the references here now. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's the first is the ocean that's the most viable one, but space would be the ultimate frontier. Yes, right. So I guess the two concerns that I think would arise here would be: is it really true that people actually have the capacity? to to leave and like is there a way to make that really like a, a viable option uh when people are already kind of being exploited in a way that prevents them from being able to travel effectively or migrate effectively or something like that but i guess that's sort of the larger concern i would have would be is your concept scalable in a way or are you going to accept like a really low like level of organizational size and capacity because your entire ethos is let's be splitters um, I'm not sure I, I actually follow your question. Uh, maybe you can try. Yeah. So it. the second one I think is the more important one here, right? So one concern with the anarchism view, like the kind of mutual aid sort of stuff is that it's not scalable that like, 
yes, it's good to have a community and to rely on that community. But if you're a small community, you need a larger organization for larger scale projects. Um, and that like, if you have this kind of approach where people are just going to kind of consistently be like splitting and walking away in this kind of sense that you're describing and there's no, there's nothing sort of holding us together um, in terms of that like kind of obligation do we, you know, are we are we accepting that we're not going to like do a lot of advancement into space or something like that, for example? Sure. Uh, so the the glue that would be holding this uh, philosophy together is not size or scale. It's more about uh, how voluntary, quote unquote, uh, each individual's participation in a, a venture is. So you can contemplate uh, a significant venture that is entirely voluntarily um, uh, cooperated on uh, and. That would be that you can still describe that as as a form of anarchism because it doesn't require any coercion or or central government authority. Uh, but there's nothing inherent about it that would, uh, at least like in theory, limit the space. I can understand there's some practical there might be practical arguments for why uh, scaling might be difficult without government authority. But that's a separate that, that's kind of like a tangent. It's a separate track uh, to what you're discussing. And when you say voluntary, what are you sort of setting as your benchmark for like? What, what do you mean by voluntary behavior here? Yeah, I'm not going to claim that there's going to be a black and white line or a bright line rule. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the thing that comes to mind is, uh, I think it's Robert Nozick, the, the st uh, story of the slave, where he presents this kind of gradation, the spectrum of different circumstances and asks people like when, uh, to, to, to your audience that doesn't know, I think on, he starts with one extreme, like someone is in bondage, has no say about what they can do with their time, they're forced into labor, has no say, they're basically just given subsistence uh, food. And then there's like little by little, he takes away some of the shackles, like maybe they're able to go into town and work for themselves. Maybe they, they only uh, have to contribute 90% of their wages rather than 100%. And so he breaks, a, a, starts like kind of eroding away the shackles and asks like, when does someone become a slave or when is someone free? I, I don't know. I, I would just say it's more of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in that sort of the theoretical side, I guess in practice, I'm curious, are you still trying to start a snow crash ship uh, country or <laughs> do you have like different anarchist goals than when you started out? So when I, when I went to law school, I, I mean, I found the, the idea of seasteading interesting and compelling. Uh, and I figured I'm not a Marine engineer, mm -hmm. uh, but perhaps I can, play some sort of ambassador or diplomat role. Uh, and that was what I was thinking about when I went to law school. And I thought, well, you know, worst case scenario, I end up being a lawyer. So it doesn't sound to be that bad. Uh, I end up in a high status profession. So it didn't seem like a very big personal risk for me. Uh, and that, so that was the initial motivation uh, in terms of like how, what I feel about it now. There hasn't been that much movement in the seasteading space. Uh, and I, there's you know, significant engineering issues, uh, some legal issues. There's some movement mm -hmm. in like the charter uh, city um, idea, uh, which uh, I think the last one I heard about was uh, like in Honduras. I haven't kept up with uh, uh, what the current status is, uh, and I'm not involved in, in anything at the moment. I wouldn't mind being involved in it, but there's, there's always plenty to st of things to do already. Interesting. So, so what does this mean then for you, like in our society, how do you, and this can bridge us like a little bit, I think, into talking about your experiences with like the criminal justice system. You, 
I guess don't technically work for the government. It sounds like based on your system, I think often public defenders do like on paper at least, right? Even though they are, mm-hmm. you know, nominally sort of defending their clients against the government in a lot of cases. Um, but as a sort of a self-identified anarchist, how you know, like how do you understand your relationship? Like to the criminal justice system, do you do you feel like your anarchism has made you like more cynical, or that like your experiences have made you more anarchistic, or is it just like a feedback loop mm-hmm. between like shitty court experiences and your philosophy? Yeah, so I mean, despite the minutia of exactly who employs me, uh, I think it's perfectly fair criticism to say I work for the government. Uh, the government is what pays me, uh, whether I'm a direct salary or not. Uh, that's probably the aspect of my job. Um, that I feel most conflicted about, not because I receive government money, but because I'm there to uh, give the entire system uh, a patina of legitimacy. Uh, because um, in, I, I write about this in 11 Magic Words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I describe myself as a widget inspector because there's so little that I can do most of the time. Uh, most of the cases I get are the evidence against my client is just overwhelming. Uh, so I'm just kind of like shrugging, like, you know, what the fuck do you want me to do about it? Uh, but I'm put into that into that scene because as they go through like the assembly line of convictions, if anyone complains at the end, they can just say, well, what the fuck are you complaining about? Like we gave you a competent attorney. So, you know, shut the fuck up. Uh, you have no reason. You have no basis to complain. And that's because of me, because of my role mm-hmm. in it. I give it legitimacy. I give it uh, uh this authenticity that perhaps it doesn't deserve. What do you think it would take to change your job to make it so that it's not just the patina? It's actually sort of fulfilling like the, the function that we theoretically imagine you doing, which is like actually protecting people from, you know, abusive behavior from the courts or the criminal justice system. I don't think there's actually anything inherently wrong with the system as is with regards to what, what I do. Uh, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with relying on the defense bar or defense attorneys to be uh, kind of like the catch uh, at the end. So prosecutors have their own ethical codes, whether or not they uh, uh, abide by them is a separate question, but they, they, they're not acting 100% arbitrarily or capriciously. They have some breaks mm-hmm. built into what they do. Uh, and then the there's also like a lot more defense attorneys and prosecutors, at least in, in the area that I practice in. I think that's true everywhere, uh, where it's just not possible for a prosecutor to to be to expect to do like a fine cone, uh, comb, like fine tooth comb over every single case. Uh, so that kind of is left up to the defense attorneys. Like, will they'll charge and prosecute and indict a bunch of uh, cases and then hope that the defense attorneys catch any actual salient issues that that may arise um to answer like your previous question there's still moments where i i find joy and just fucking shit up for the government Mm -hmm. i i just find that very pleasurable uh and i love being the cog the gear and the cog of of wheels turning uh i love being a hurdle it's uh it's gratifying to me and that's probably like what keeps me uh, in this work, even though those moments are rare. 
what about that is gratifying to you? Is it just like a visceral um, dislike of government power and enjoying seeing it slowed down? Is it that you think you're actually helping individuals who are who deserve to not face the punishment that you're helping them avoid? Or how do you think about that pleasure? I don't know if it's necessarily the... Well, I, I, I generally have a grim view of the criminal justice system and uh, wouldn't put incarceration as uh, at the top in terms of tools that I want to use to redress uh, issues. Mm. So I enjoy being a counter to that. Uh, I enjoy being the counter to just any sort of government authority uh, because there, it's something, I think it's uh, difficult to um, clearly communicate uh, the uh, just how much power and antagonism is inside a courtroom. Uh, there's this kind of ornate, um, this austere or, uh, mm -hmm. ornamentation about how, uh, people talk to each other, how they dress up. Um, there's this very detached stoic way of talking in court where you, it doesn't sound like a real conversation. You're just like your honor, like we, the, you know, the parties have agreed, like you talk in third person, you talk in this very like flourish style. Uh, and it, I think it, it's perhaps a way to mask the inherent violence that exists within that courtroom. Because yeah, you have a, a guy in a robe sitting on the dais uh, up above everyone else. There's nothing inherently violent about that, but the, their, the a judge's authority and power uh, commands a lot of attention from people that have guns and are just kind of like in the hallways or in the room ready to, to meet out violence if necessary. Uh, there's, there's kind of like a mask to, to that whole ritual. Interesting. So for me, like, as I'm listening to this, part of the part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, you know, coming from a lefty progressive kind of position, I tend to have a pretty negative view of the criminal justice system. I, I think that we need a criminal justice system. I'm not for like the abolition of all you know laws or something like that. Um, but it seems to me that our particular system is sort of you know, either not working as intended or working as intended, but that's not a good thing. Um, and I guess I'm curious, you know, in your experience, it sounds like you would not consider that to be sort of an unfair assessment, or do you see this as like working as yeah. intended and that's a bad thing? Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's working as intended. Mm -hmm. Um, not fully, like, I don't think it's completely off the wheels. There's some improvements, uh, uh, compared to other countries or compared to other time periods. Uh, but it definitely could be uh, better in, in, in many different dimensions. What do you think that like the people involved think they're doing versus what they're actually doing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you'd, you'd have to narrow that down uh, some. Yeah. So I guess I wonder, <clears throat> do you think that like most of the people involved in this system think that it is a good system for deterring crime or a good system for, you know, rehabilitating individuals or like which of these principles do you think people are actually like telling themselves they are doing well on? And do you feel like we're actually doing well on any of them? Yeah. So I, I get, um, I think what it might be a surprising amount of, uh, uh, uh candidness or is that how you say sure. it? Candidness yeah. uh, from uh, prosecutors. Uh, yeah. English is my third language, by the way. So mm. any criticism is inherently racist. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, 
the prosecutors uh, talk openly uh, about like what motivates them. And I have to acknowledge that they have uh, a difficult job. And I'm not saying that facetiously. They, uh, they're, they're sort of deal. They're, they're sort of like the, the conduit for victims of, uh, of crime where uh, they're not technically the victim's lawyer, but they almost act like they are. Uh, they are responsible for representing the quote unquote people. And what, part of like where they take their responsibilities more seriously is when they advocate on behalf of victims. So when they, when they have someone that's been violently assaulted or shot or robbed or otherwise harmed, uh, they see themselves as like kind of like their protector or their advocate in court. And a lot of times when sometimes like, uh, when they see someone, uh, that's a repeat offender, they basically just give up and say, look, there's nothing else that we can do. So at the very least, we can rely on, on incapacitation to prevent further harm because while they're in jail, they're not going to be able, able to hurt anyone else. And I hear this explicitly said by prosecutors like, yeah, we don't we don't think they're going to be rehabilitated. Like this is the third time they've been in prison. Their, their behavior is not going to change, but at least they're not going to be able to hurt anyone else. So from that standpoint, yeah, like it's it's going to work. Like when you put people in prison, they're not going to be able to to hurt uh, anyone else except like other inmates during during a fight or a riot, uh, so I, I can't. I don't have any argument against incapacitation in terms of how effective it is. Uh, the argument that I would have against it is: is it necessarily like the most uh, efficient or most humane way uh, to prevent further crime? Uh, and that gets into like what exactly our punish uh, our incarceration system is supposed to to meet out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're from like the public. From like the PR angle, they would say, oh, it's about uh, rehabilitation so that they come out better than they were uh, going in. Uh, but that almost seems just like like a cynical ploy. Like, I don't I don't know if anyone actually takes that seriously. Uh, my impression of the carceral state is that it significantly uh, a significant portion of it is driven by just sheer retribution, which is just like you did something wrong. Fuck you. Like, we don't care. We're just going to punish you because we don't like you uh, less. Uh, further down the line would be deterrence where we're going to like, we're going to threaten you with uh, punishment as a way to hopefully deter you from doing this thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's very interesting about the retribution being the kind of driving energy. And I want to come back to that in a second when we talk about the luck stuff. Um, But I want to talk about the, uh, the the repeat offender thing because, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong about this, my um, indoctrinated understanding is that like the American justice system is particularly bad on recidivism that like some other countries have other models that appear to do a better job at rehabilitation than ours. Um, You have talked, I've, I've heard you, I think in various places talk about like part of the difficulty with your job is that you want to help people, but you see them sort of, making really bad decisions over and over again in ways that prevent you from helping them, um, which, you know, I think would include things like being repeat offenders and stuff like that. When you see those people making those decisions, what do you feel like is like driving that behavior, right? Do you feel like it's, you know, they're being, you know, there's this theory that people are being institutionalized or something and they get used to like, going back into the system or something like that? Or do you feel like it's just they have no other options and so they keep doing the same behaviors? How do you how do you make sense of what, what appears to you to be that kind of irrational behavior? Yeah, so in a lot of situations, uh, I think I would be grasping at straws to construct uh, 
a coherent explanation for my client's behavior. Mm. Um, maybe I'll start with an easy one. Uh, a lot of my clients are, are hooked on drugs, heroin, methamphetamine, or, or some other type. And uh, I would say almost entirely uh, every single property crime that I've encountered in my caseload, which may or may not be representative, but almost all of it is driven by the need to make money so that you can buy drugs. I, I have not seen any exception to this. Hmm. Uh, and so in, in those circumstances, the, the motivations seem clear to me. Someone has an overriding desire to use a drug. That's a desire that I don't personally understand, but I, I, I acknowledge that it's real based on just my observations of the world. Uh, and they're driven to use this drug to such a degree that they're willing, like, like one thing you can't, I don't think you can say about drug users is they're not lazy. Like they spend a lot of time mm -hmm. finding ways to, to cheat and to steal and, uh, you know, destroy property for their own benefit, but that's not born out of uh, laziness. Um, I had a friend that was uh, addicted to heroin for seven years and living on uh, homeless, uh, living on the street. And I asked him, you know, how much did he spend money? How much did he spend on heroin a day? And he told me a hundred dollars a day, which like blew my mind. That's, you know, that's $36,000 uh, a year. Mm -hmm. That's almost like it's a shitty low paying job, but that's a full-time job. And that's just on, on heroin. And I didn't believe him. And I, 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 at the time I didn't believe him. And I looked at other studies that basically said the same thing. It's about 60 to a hundred dollars on heroin. And I asked him how he was able to raise this money. And he said, Oh, it was just like boosting shit. So his favorite things to steal were textbooks because they were innocuous and, and college textbooks. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm familiar with their the, costs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they maintained their value really well. Uh, and, and also uh, uh, video games from Target, things like that. But you know, you have to imagine that the what economists would call deadweight loss would be significant. There would be a, a big uh, difference between how much uh, any given thing cost the person it's being stolen from, and how much uh, this, the thief would be able to get for it. Um, so that that's that would be, I think, like a plain. Uh, plainly obvious motivator. Mm -hmm. uh, property crime, significant portion is just drug use. And there's ways, I, I think there's easier way or better ways to to deal with that. Uh, when it comes to- Yeah, I was curious, violent better crime, ways, is that going to be like decriminalization, like medicalization kind of approaches? Or how do you, yeah, how do you see that? My, my, appro <laughs> my approach would be just give people drugs for free. Yeah, okay. I'm not against that. <laughs> the- the only, I think the only, uh, the only, uh, I guess, arguments I've heard against is that you don't want to encourage bad behavior or you don't want to reward right. uh, people that are engaging in bad behavior. But my response is, I mean, you're dealing with just like massive property crimes for no good reason. And, and as you just uh, described, those individuals probably are not like responsive to those kinds of reasons, right? Like that's yeah, not how their reasoning is working in that situation. Right, and there's there's so there's kind of like an infinite array of of ways to to steal things. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you if you increase enforcement in one area, you're just gonna encourage people to find more creative ways to to find something. Uh, maybe it'll be like strip mining construction sites for copper pipes or something like that. You're, you're gonna there's no bound to human creativity in the pursuit of the dollar. So there's it's basically like uh, I would say what is that completely inelastic. Uh, in terms of how you can uh, uh, 
how people respond to to those to those incentives. They'll find some other way to mm-hmm. to steal things. I see. So you were saying though about violent crime is different from that in your mind. Yeah, violent crime is. I I just I don't get it. Uh, I um, I consider myself a broadly empathetic person, but I I have a really difficult time understanding anger to the point where it makes you do really really dumb shit. Um, so many of the um, shootings, stabbings, uh, cases that I that I've had, I'm just bewildered. I just think, why did you do this? It, it makes no sense. Uh, either they they were res- assaulting someone over a slight that was innocuous or inconsequential, uh, or they did so in such a manner that made it plainly obvious that they were going to be caught, uh, like in full view of several cameras. So my suspicion in those circumstances is that I start to suspect uh, some sort of developmental disorder. I'm not Mm. claiming conclusively that it is, but people's behavior in that realm is just so bewildering to me that I just, it doesn't seem rational. Like it doesn't seem responsive to rational impulses. Um, And again, like I'm (laughs) trying to qualify that 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 statement i'm not saying it's conclusively true but that's how just to show you like how confused i am by by people's behaviors in that front yeah so i mean i think there's like a couple of potential things i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on in relation to that kind of anger issue you have the kind of classic theory of like lead paint being a huge reason for spikes in mm-hmm. um you know violent behavior and that like in some communities you're still seeing sort of higher than acceptable levels of lead that could explain it to some extent. You have sort of the theories, especially that um, individuals of color with disability, with developmental um, issues are, are more likely to be tracked into like a prison system than into the kind of medical or mental health that they need in certain situations. And that could be sort of potentially um, what you're seeing there. I guess I, I, yeah, I've had a client. I've had some clients where I have documented evidence of fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm. Uh, so that kind of makes it easier, quote unquote, to explain away their bad behavior. Uh, but I don't have that for everyone, and I don't want I don't want anyone listening to this to think, oh, it's just like developmental disabilities. That's like you know wrapping up in like a nice tidy bow. Oh yeah, no, I was. I, I think there are lots of potential claim. different explanations for different kinds of the you know like similar looking behavior can have a lot of different causes, right? Like you were saying. So I was also curious what you think about you know when you talked about the like violent responses to trivial slights. The first thing that comes to mind for me there is honor culture and the kind of literature about like the way that in an honor culture you have to radically kind of violently escalate in response to slights because of the way that your honor is that kind of currency that has to be maintained in that way. Do you feel like mm-hmm. that, that like that tracks with what you hear your clients saying about these sort of circumstances or? Yeah. But one thing I should also make clear is that I, I think people maybe assume that my clients and I are on the same side of things in many ways, but it, it's a, it's a highly antagonistic relationship. Uh-huh. The one that I have with my clients, uh, clients lie to me all the time. They yell at me all the time. They, I'm kind of the weak point in the system that they can, uh, that that's the weak area that they can push on because they have, they're frustrated with themselves and they're frustrated that they got caught. They're frustrated that they're being pros- prosecuted. And the only one they can really take out their anger on, it's not the judge or prosecutor, obviously it's me. Uh, so it tends to be an acrimonious, uh, relationship. Uh, and also like, which, which also means that I can't really take what they say, uh, at face value. Sure. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> I have many examples uh, of of what I mean by that, but uh, and how it hurts my ability to do my job uh, in terms of just how much my clients lie to me. Uh, but whenever they explain something to me, I, I mean, I try to maintain an open mind. I try to approach it from uh, with the principle of charity. Uh, but I I don't I don't know how often it's just a self serving uh, explanation. For sure, yeah, we construct these kind of narratives uh, as well. One other sort of theory I would be curious to, to run by you is sort of a more sociological one where it's, um, you know, I think, I, I'm not sure exactly what community in particular you're servicing, but I'm going to guess as a public defender, you're tending to be servicing lower income individuals and potentially disproportionately people of color, depending on your location. Um, right. But one thing uh, um, worth mentioning is mm -hmm. that it's the number of criminal defendants are represented by a public defender. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's around at least 90%. Really? So, uh, it, varies, it varies across the country. Uh, but when you're talking about the criminal uh, justice system, it's almost entirely indigent uh, defendants. The vast, vast majority are. Oh, wow. Uh, for, for many, many reasons. Um, generally... So you're saying uh, it's, it's lower that, income individuals. It is 90% it is covered, but it, like that's all still low income individuals, you're saying, or, or overwhelmingly. Yeah, meaning low income enough to qualify for a public defender. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're in many ways, like the public defense uh, uh, bar is is the is the defense bar. Jesus. Uh, that seems ways... bad in itself, right? Yeah, I We're, we're, I agree. we're criminalizing um, poverty there, right? It seems like at that point. I don't think it's it's that simple. Mm -hmm. uh, it's there's a uh, there's kind of a con a confluence between different factors, in that uh, when you are poor, you let's say you're homeless, you're more likely just to just be contacted by police, sure. even if you're not doing anything wrong. Right. Um, like in in my life, I have you know I've probably been pulled over twice for speeding. Uh, I, it's it's rare for me to to have police contact, but it happens to my clients all the time. Even when I have verifiable proof that they're not doing anything wrong, it's just, there happens to be within the attention of someone. Mm -hmm. Um, the other ways is, uh, when you're rich, well, well, having, um, when I was talking about impulsivity, the clients that exhibit that, uh, lack of impulse control, they're also not going to be the same people that have the wherewithal to hold a nine to five job. So just by virtue of, or, having, or they're going to be rich enough, they're going to have a much better lawyer, right? Or a much more expensive lawyer. I don't want to say better, right? But like, well, I'm yeah. trying to, I'm trying to keep these things discreet. Yeah. So when I'm talking about like who has the the mental capacity to hold a job consistently, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't help you when you when you can't control your temper. Uh, on top of that, having money helps you shield bad behavior. So. I, I guarantee if you right. uh, if you just like pick the richest neighborhood and just like did a drug raid on every single house, you're going to find a lot of illegal drugs. Right. But there's no but there's no mechanism necessarily available to to raid people's homes for no reason or like uncover it. So it tends to be kind of like stayed uh, hidden behind doors. Uh, and if um, and if you're rich, you probably have enough connections to to make maybe like lean on prosecutors or judges right. that you know or or police officers that you know to make something go away so you're saying we should so raid people's raid rich people's homes more is what i'm hearing you saying here right <laughs> just kicking down rich people's doors that's your, your i think so i heard about south korea uh i think their pres half of their presidents are in prison for something mm -hmm. I, I might be wrong it's a, it's something along that lines and i wouldn't mind seeing more uh presidents end up in prison just as like as a way to 
instill fear on on the elites. Right. That's like Detroit uh, so mayor I, I'm, numbers I'm okay there. With that. Um, that's that? like Detroit mayor numbers there. Um, but yeah, <laughs> one other kind of behavior that like I, I'm curious to ask you about, and then I want to pivot before we run out of time to some of the like luck stuff. Y- you know. One thing people point to will be if you're in these situations where you're justifiably angry about your options, especially like young men who might feel like they don't have like a career path or anything in front of them. Um, there's these studies, you know, they did one um, with like British lads is what they call them, where it's like, you know, they act out in various kinds of ways in response to like a correct assessment of their actual opportunities in life. But that like acting out behavior while justified actually undercuts their ability to do, you know, anything about their situation, essentially. Do you feel like you're also seeing individuals where it's like you can kind of understand that they're justified, you know, in feeling angry about their circumstances, even if you realize that like they're they're like, you know, conflict, their 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 attempts to sort of react against that, beha- you know, that situation are still harming their situation? Um. Yeah, so I'll preface this with a with another qualifier mm-hmm. in that I'm I'm kind of just like free range speculating in many ways. Uh, the way if we're we're talking about young men and how they they're obviously like the most violent uh, segment of the population. The many of the reasons why they would act out, I'm assuming, has to do with uh, how it helps them socially, either with their friends or with the romantic partners. Uh, mm-hmm. So. It's, I don't know if it's, if it explains everything when you just look at their material uh, position in life. I see. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say, um, no, I think that makes sense. Right. I think none of these are going to be just the like sole explanation or something like that. Um, more like, are these sort of various kinds of contributing factors that like, you know, contribute, like build, build the permission structure that leads to these sort of violent escalations that seem very irrational to you um you know incentives plus a lack of caring because you already think the system has abandoned you kind of thinking i mean that's part of it there's probably a calculation happening somewhere where it's like yeah this is going to be get me into legal trouble it's going to hurt my career opportunities but it helps me within my community it helps me get laid or some other uh other possibility of of reward Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you then about, I want to drive, um, like focusing on one situation. And it was the one that you mentioned think, earlier. Oh. Yeah. But you, you all, I think you also asked me about when I got into, when I started talking about 80 to 90% of defendants are have a public defender. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that, I, I think I interrupted you. Oh no, I think, I, you know, I, I wanted to come back to this question about specifically the kind of lads approach as well. Um, so okay. it was just sort of getting a sense of like what the socioeconomic status was for the people that you're, working with um yeah so i want to ask you about the um 11 magic words article uh which in my view paints a pretty dark picture of the kind of capricious (laughs) nature of our system um it seems like you might agree at this point um do you want to like briefly describe sort of the key moment of that situation and what your takeaway was from that experience sure so um that was the first thing that i wrote for jesse single uh last year uh it's probably the piece that i'm proudest of and uh, it describes uh, how I feel about my job. So I, I go on and on about what I do uh, at the beginning, and I, I say I'm useless. Uh, and what I meant by that was there's very little that I can do for most of my clients because the evidence is overwhelming. Um, so a lot of my job just feels tedious. Uh, 
and wrote because I'm in an assembly line kind of just pushing paper along, helping grease the machine uh, and move the assembly line along. Uh, but then there's some rare exceptions where uh, I can make a difference and the um, I recommend people read it. Uh, but the penultimate moment was when I uh, changed one, one of my clients' uh, trajectory in life, uh, I would say vastly different uh, just by uttering 11 words. That changed the outcome. And that scared the fuck out of me after because I just thought I'm not supposed to have that much power. Uh, it doesn't make sense for there, for there to be these possibilities where I can make such a big difference in someone's life because that instilled this, this perpetual fear. It's what else could I be doing whenever I'm in court or whatever I'm, I'm doing something in the moment. I, I always have to rack my mind. It's mm. like, what else could you have done? Uh, what else, uh, what else could you have said? How should you have said it differently? Uh, there's so many different things I could, I could change. Uh, and I would just drive myself insane if I kept thinking about all the missed opportunities. And, you know, frankly, in many ways I, I did in, in some circumstances where I would just feel uh, completely desolate about, you know, one day in court didn't go well. And I think what, maybe I said that word with the wrong intonation, or maybe I shouldn't have used that vocabulary, mm -hmm. or maybe I should have done this. Like there, there's so many ways that it could go wrong. And uh, it, to me, it highlighted just how much uh, power, raw, uh, kind of raw discretionary power that judges have that no one really can, can double check. Uh, uh, and what I mean by double check is that a lot of these issues just are not appealable for one reason or another. Mm. Uh, and, um, we try to, we try to construct this system of law that tries to be detached, but it's easy to forget how temperamental the human being sitting at the helm can be. Um, and I just like you to imagine, you know, if, if you're driving and someone cuts you off and, and you have this moment of violence flash in your mind where you're like, oh, I wish I could just like torture this person because I hate them so much. And in some ways, judges have that opportunity where they can they can lash out at clients right. if clients like curse them out. Uh, they can make people's lives hell if they wanted to. And we still have the system where humans are at the helm and we hope that they act with honor. And uh, mm -hmm. I say, like, you know, if we give them enough your honor per minute, maybe they'll remember what their oath is. Uh, but that's not, that's not, you know, it's not, <laughs> right. it's not a perfect uh, system. It's not going to be a guarantee. Right. There's the classic study the situationalists will bring up where the, you know, what time of day, if it's like, like right before lunch, you get harsher sentences or something like that. Um, yeah. I think that that study was later discredited. Was it discredited? I don't know if that replicated out. or not, yeah. but um I think they found out the different cases where you oh, were in the afternoon than in the morning. Uh, but I, I, it, these things are hard to test for obvious reasons. Right, right. And you have that kind of capricious concern. But of course, you know, all situations that involve human beings are going to have, it seems like. And this is sort of, you know, you say you shouldn't have that kind of power. I'm, I'm curious to sort of poke at that should a little bit because I feel like in a high stakes job, whether it's being a surgeon or, you know, a lawyer or something like that, to some extent, it seems like unavoidable that there's going to be situations where if you fuck up, you're going to ruin someone's life or you're going to kill them or something, you know, like we can't sort of divest humans, remove the power from the hands of humans enough. Um, now, maybe you want to say that, like, we need more oversight on judges or something like that. But I guess I'm curious what you see as 
the way you would want that situation to have gone where you didn't have to, ha- you know, wield all of that power accidentally by saying those words. I think the, the fear there is just the, the arbitrariness of it all. Um, if there's a surgeon that makes a mistake, we can analyze hmm. what they should have done ahead of time. But there's, there's a, a modicum of predictability to, to it all. Uh, when the situation that I described with the 11 magic words was more like, why did this happen? Like, I, I don't know why it happened. Uh, I can try to construct this narrative, uh, especially one that makes me look good uh, about how I, I saved the day, but that's not, that's not going to explain it all. Uh, it, and, and I guess uh, to be fair, there's in the early, in the late seventies, early eighties, there was a movement across the States where uh, a lot, including the federal government, where they, a lot of states reformed their sentencing structure mm-hmm. and they introduced, so many places introduced this point system where before there would be this range that judges could impose whatever they wanted. Uh, so, you know, someone robbing uh, a convenience store could get anywhere from zero to two years or five years. And it was kind of random and arbitrary and there was no real coherence across uh, one particular state. So they tried to formalize it and streamline it and say, okay, if it's a robbery, then it's a, it's a class B felony and it's a serious level of six. And here's like the point system that you count, like you count the different, the past criminal history, uh, you count how many other concurrent felonies that they have. And that's going to give you a presumptive range of, you know, like 60 to 76 months or something like that. And they would, they would put like these safety valves uh, where you can go under uh, in exceptional circumstances or over. Uh, but the the goal was to to formalize it and streamline it, and I have to concede that that's an improvement in some ways, uh, because it it does take away uh, some of the judge uh, this, this kind of like broad discretion that judges possessed uh, before. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still have a, a shit ton of discretion, and I don't uh, and you know I would like to contemplate a scenario where you just replace the judges with an AI, uh, but. <laughs> There's, there's plenty of words to say about right. all the problems that where where that can that go. might not that might not increase oversight or or transparency or anything. It might right. do quite the opposite, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, it yeah. seems to me when you're describing the sort of um, existential horror that you experienced in this kind of moment, this to me is like, and again, my obsession, but whatever, you know, a moment where you're confronted by the nature of luck in people's lives. That like that person was extremely lucky that you happened to say those words and they happened to fall on that judge's ear in the right kind of ways. You can't infer any further, like, here's what I can do next time to replicate that. So that's one level of the horror, right? It's, it's, this is why mm-hmm. some people will say you shouldn't, you know, attribute success to luck because you won't know how to, you know, predict that, you know. So instead, what we do is like survivor bias, which is not much better. But, you know, you have this situation yeah. where you help somebody and that was good, but you can't manage to do it again necessarily. And it's horrifying that it was kind of as random as it felt like it was in that moment. Um, but as you also say, it seems to me, I'm not sure you can fully remove like some amount of that kind of luck, that kind of capriciousness from the system, because, you know, if you, you put in the kind of point safeguards that you're describing to decrease, you know, the range of capriciousness, then you have the costs for individuals who like, for some reason or another, end up on the wrong side of the point system. Like those systems are always, you know, necessarily going to be a little too rigid for some cases. And in those cases, you're going to have a harm for for them instead. So it's just like, there's no escaping that kind of um, luck on that side of things, it seems like. 
Yeah, I, I don't have like a ready solution. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that did come to mind was uh, perhaps you can, instead of having a single judge determine a sentence, perhaps you can have like a council uh, that would ameliorate some of the excesses that any individual might might succumb to. Right. This is how an anarchist uh, turns any... into a status, though, right? It's you're like, well, what if I have more <laughs> more bureaucrats, right? More more checks and balances, and all of a sudden you've got a government. Well, well sometimes that's uh, having more is the point uh-huh. where you the the purpose is adding friction, sure, uh, friction to it. And um, you don't want too much friction, right? Doesn't... You want a system that functions, right? You, too many veto points, and like you have a completely dysfunctional system where somebody sits in in limbo forever or something like that instead. So it's like, well, yeah. And I, I can see some ways where that's uh, beneficial. Yeah. Or, I'm not expecting uh, you to solve this. I'm just sort of yeah. <laughs> shit joining with you and being like, I don't know how to deal with this. Because like, I really, you know, you also, I mentioned, wrote this article, I am here because of dumb luck. Um, and maybe we can maybe mm-hmm. tie that in here as well. You know, that's that's very much baity for me. And I'm curious, you know, <laughs> what is your actual conclusion from that piece? Are you are you as luck pilled as I am where you really think that like everything about us is luck or you just recognize that the fact that you ended up here is luck, but there are other things about you that aren't luck. No, I, I think it's, uh, it, I would have to, I'm having a hard time, I guess, contemplating what the counter argument to luck would be because there's, there's obvious ways that I benefit from luck that I had nothing to do with. Uh, I think the, what is it referred to? Constitutional luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, I have a lot of advantages uh, a lot of them superficial. Like I'm tall. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm beard. intelligent. I think. Yeah. Thank you. They, they can't see. So I got. I got to let them know. Right. Like. <laughs> uh, so it does feel perverse to just say, "Oh, I'm such a great person because of that," because um, it's not born out of an achievement. But even even if it was born out of an achievement, then what does it really mean if we're if we're deriving all the way back to constitutional luck? Um, so the, the piece that I wrote, uh, also for single was, uh, about how I came to the United States and it's, it's literally, it was literally a lottery. Uh, it was a government, uh, immigration lottery that picked my dad's name out of a hat out of a hundred thousand, uh, picked a hundred thousand names out of a hat and, uh, let me and my family move from Morocco where I was born and raised to the United States. And, you know, I, I can't falsify this because I don't have, I don't know what the alternate scenario looks like, uh, but I imagine that this was a significant improvement to my life uh, based on how my cousins are doing and like how someone similarly situated uh, is doing it, how they stayed in Morocco. Um, so that, that was a boon to my family. Uh, and what I wanted to highlight is in that, in that piece is that we didn't do anything for it. It was literally a lottery. There was, it's, it wasn't like a merit-based test or, like who can sing mm-hmm. the national anthem the the best or anything like that? It was just pure blind luck. That's how I ended up uh, in this country. And the the conclusion that I would draw from it is that we should have less lotteries. Uh, I mean, we should. I would be in favor of less lotteries in general, but we should also have less explicitly made lotteries or like intentionally made lotteries uh, made by humans to determine who is going to advance oh, uh, in one way or the other. Uh, I, I go in the other direction. I'm, so... I'm more more lotteries. I I, have, I think a luckocracy <laughs> is better in a lot of ways, and there's some good data on that. But I'm, I'm surprised that your your, okay. your your response, especially as an anarchist, isn't mine, which is that like borders are luck dams and we should tear them down because they're clearly like. Oh yeah, no, can... that's okay. what I was saying. Okay, that's sorry. what I was yeah, getting okay. at. I don't believe I don't believe in borders. Oh, I see. Uh, I see. I don't Get rid of the lottery in... and the I'm... immigration system and open up the borders. 
Yes, okay, if, if we're going to have immigration, I don't want it to be based on what a computer picks. Uh, I don't want that to be the hindrance uh, to where someone can move. I'm in, I'm in favor of 100% open borders. But you're not in no favor of like a purely whatsoever. meritocratic system either, right? Like, you think people should be able to move with where better. they want? If I had to pick between uh, a lottery system and a meritocratic uh, system, actually, I, I might be agnostic between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have a slight edge towards a meritocratic, a meritocratic uh, system, mm. but my ultimate goal would be, yeah, no restrictions on immigration whatsoever. If I had more time, I think I could convince you that the luckocracy is the way to go over the meritocracy, but I don't know if we have enough time. I'm probably open to yeah, it. Yeah, I think you would be. Um, but I want to I ask you in relation to this stuff, like, you know, if you're sympathetic to this kind of perspective, what do you think would happen if like a large number of individuals in the criminal justice system became sympathetic to a perspective like that? You mentioned earlier that like a lot of the animus behind the system is still this kind of retributive mindset, which I think is pretty incompatible with that kind of luck-pilled mindset. Do you think that it would actually impact anything or change people's behavior or, or bring about a change in the system? Yeah, in, in some ways. So I listened to your to your appearance in uh, with Ben Burgess and uh, mm-hmm. the other podcast. Left of philosophy. On the left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, left of philosophy. Uh, and the I was kind of confused by the debate on free will because to me I'm probably more of a determinist, but I also don't really care. I don't see how it matters one way or the other. Um, the the I think like the traditional argument for or. I, the traditional implication that I was able to discern from the uh, debate over free will is whether or not it's right to punish someone. And I don't find that to be an interesting question because you can justify punishment if it deters people, or at least I can justify punishment if it deters people. Because mm-hmm. uh, I don't think anyone, even the strongest determinists, will still concede that people respond to incentives. Right? Even more so. They will, they will say that people are more likely to respond to incentives than the people who think that like we have radical free will because they, those right. people think that like, why aren't you responding to the incentives properly? Um, so, right. yeah. so if you have free will, then you can say people have a moral responsibility and therefore it's, it's moral to punish them. But if you don't have free will, then you can just say, well, they respond to incentives anyway, so it's okay to punish them. So it's it's okay to punish people in either way. Yeah, so I think, uh, that's why I was kind of confused with the by the implications. So I think the fine-grained distinction there would be between do they deserve to be punished or not. It can be moral why to punish them. Why does that matter? Them. Well, because I think it would affect how we punish them, right? If we think someone deserves to be punished, I think we would put them in a different kind of prison than if we don't think they deserve to be punished. And I think so we would treat the them only- differently in those prisons. Yeah. I think the only, um, when you look at, I guess, like the purpose of incarceration, um, deterrence, rehabilitation, retribution, incapacitation, mm-hmm. the only one that I can see being moved by free will debate is the retribution one. Right. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Yes. So um, I, I said, uh, like when we were chatting before the, the show, I said, uh, you can still justify retribution. And I put justifying quotes. You can justify retribution from just like a utilitarian standpoint where the person meeting out or knowing about the punishment feels good to hear that someone else is getting punished. Um, your counter was what? Go ahead. I mean, my counter would be that pleasure is overwhelmed by the like moral harms of this and that you should teach that person the luck-pilled view and then they won't take pleasure in the suffering of others and they won't want to see that person suffer anymore. Yeah, and, and I concede that uh, a significant portion of people's pleasure derives from the idea that, that they believe the subject of the punishment has free will and therefore is more deserving of the punishment. I concede a portion of that. But then I thought, I mean, people derive pleasure from like 
hurting dogs. Uh, they derive pleasure from hurting inanimate uh, objects. And I just thought of like the scene in Office Space where they, they sure. beat the shit out of the printer that was causing them a lot of grief. So I think you have a point, but I'm not sure it fully explains uh, fully explains it all. Oh, so yeah, what I would say is that like we get pleasure from breaking things for lots of reasons, um, but we get a special kind of pleasure from what we think is justified punishment in this kind of way. And that... Are, there's there's some evidence, some studies have suggested that belief in free will is our ad hoc rationalization for how we allow ourselves a permission structure to take pleasure in the suffering of others, to, to, to do that kind of behavior, um, which I think is is plausible. So I guess, you know, for example, I think the real world implications would be, you know, when someone like me argues for, I guess, you know, we'll call it the Swedish model for, you know, simplicity's sake, right? The more uh, rehabilitative where they live in a kind of commune where they, you know, aren't in these tiny cells where they're getting more skilled training, things like that compared to our system. Um, you know, one of the major pushbacks on that kind of model is going to be, but they deserve worse, right? They're living better than some people who aren't in prison or something like that. And that's not fair. They need to be suffering more than they currently are in that situation. And then they look at our system and they say, see, those people are suffering the appropriate amount for what they did wrong, right? They're in these, you know, unpleasant conditions. Yeah. And that's a good thing. I mean, the, the response that I find more helpful in that context is to say, is kind of to step aside whether or not they deserve to be, to hurt or not. It's more, well, wouldn't it be better for you if they weren't such, you know, spiteful, vengeful uh, idiots when they get out of prison. Uh, you can just you can still flip it around and say, just think about your own self interest. Don't you want to be in a society where you don't you're not spending an ass load of money on on incarceration and you're mm -hmm. not in perpetual fear of people getting out of prison to the point that they become kind of like persona non grata and only increases the the possibility that they're gonna recommit an offense. That's how I would personally frame it. I don't know exactly how. Sure. I think that's another way you could go. Like, you know, there are often multiple arguments you can make based on different moral foundations, right? So you're kind of making that sort of harm reduction argument, whereas I'm kind of attacking a fairness argument with another fairness argument, in a sense, um, fighting well, over the sense of fairness there, it seems to me. Whereas you're saying you're sort of conceding to them, maybe, maybe the person does deserve this, but they're they're deserving to suffer is outweighed by the value of them not being terrible people because they're rehabilitated right and i mean i just think about I, I think in many ways the discussion over incarceration and criminal justice in this country is broken because not everyone i guess wants to concede certain points um so what i mean by that is um uh, like whenever uh, uh, the Norway or Scandinavian model of, of prison is heralded, it's like yeah, and also you, you can you can point to how low how much lower crime that they have, and then mm -hmm. you have I guess like the conservative response is like yeah they have lower crime because they don't have black people, uh, and then a, a, a liberal response is like yeah they have lower crime because they don't have guns, and it just kind of turns into everyone's pet issue, uh, and it doesn't. It, it clouds the the discourse so much that no one seems to be interested in actually discerning the truth or like the true factors that are motivating any of this. And so we just end up kind of like rudderless and, and at a standstill. Uh-huh. That's fair. And I want to talk, I think, a little bit more about some of those issues uh, in the, the VIP segment, because we're getting out of, a little bit out of time here. Um, but let me ask you just one sort of final broad question, since you're saying, you know, 
you feel like there is a, a level of brokenness here, but people sort of fall back on their own pet issues. So what are your pet issues is I sort of, I guess the way to phrase this question, right? Like if there was one or two things that you could change about our criminal justice system, besides you having less responsibility for people's futures, um, what would that look like? Or do you think that we just have to overhaul the whole system in some much more radical way? Yeah. So I, I have, I have plenty to say. I'll, I'll try to keep it short. No the a big one is uh, a big portion that I'm sympathetic with police uh, with after watching hundreds of hours of body cam footage is they just have way too much to do. Uh, there's too many laws that are, that society expects to fix by sending someone with a gun and the legal authority to kill people. Uh, that just does not seem workable. Uh, this I think is most obvious when it comes to traffic enforcement it's just that that makes no no sense at all to use armed men, uh, armed agents of the states to make sure people are not driving too fast. Sure. Uh, I would be in favor of of like a cadre of you know detached traffic enforcers that just like take pictures of people's license plate or whatever and sends them uh, a citation. And I suspect that the reason why we are not seeing that is because the police or like the law enfor- the pro law enforcement or pro law and order uh, faction wants contact with the with the public they want the police to have contact with the public because it's a pretextual way to investigate finding drugs guns or whatever and it's it's not honest right it's it's Mm -hmm. a given do you think that do you think that is a a more of a cause than the like the financial incentive for police officers where they make you know that they're um they're funded by those tickets and such yeah, that's. I mean, that's another problem. It's uh, that's also pretextual. Like they'll say, "Oh, this is for public safety," but I can easily draft you a system that prioritizes public safety over uh, over monetary gains for the state when it comes to traffic enforcement. So, like for example, I would be in favor of uh, a traffic enforcement system that has no fines and relies entirely on points, because uh, it doesn't make sense for uh, this is this is sure. changing uh, over time, but. In many states, if you don't pay a traffic uh, ticket, then your license gets suspended, and then it becomes a crime for you to drive on a suspended license, which results in more fines. That I think that's just completely indefensible. Right, any crime uh, there's you no pay reason. a fine for is only a crime for poor people. Right, exactly, and that that just makes no sense. Like if you if you are honest and say, well, we just want to raise money, then that that gets us somewhere. But if your goal is we want to protect the public, then if you're really honest about that, it would look different. The system would look different. So I don't, I don't believe those justifications. Right. So that would be one thing. Like there's too many laws um, uh, to enforce that. And the corollary is there's, there's too much jail to enforce these laws that I, I don't, I, I kind of have like trouble understanding the zeal behind, I forget, I live in a state where weed is legal and I forget that people go to prison for smoking weed mm-hmm. uh, across the country that, it's so bizarre to me and it, I, I have trouble empathizing with that perspective and I don't, I don't get it. It's a waste of public resources. You're spending something like $30,000 to put someone in prison every year. Uh, it just engenders uh, severe distrust of law enforcement, uh, which would get into like a third point would be, there's just not enough trust of law enforcement. They're not seen for some people, for some segments of society more than others, but in general, you know, if you see like a cop behind you when you're driving, you're not like, oh, thank God I'm safe. It's more like, oh shit, what did I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, compare, you know, a reaction, uh, Brian Kaplan used to say this, like compare the reaction to like when you're at a mall and you see a security guard behind you, you're like, okay, that's, that's fine. Like it's not, it doesn't strike the same fear 
or an acrimony and antagonism as a police presence does. And I don't, I, I can't imagine that that helps law enforcement do their job because no. they need, they need to, they need cooperation and support from the community to, to get investigation leads, to figure out like where, who to talk to, where to go. And if they, if that breaks down, then you're just going to get this kind of bubble that reinforces uh, itself. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I have lots more follow-up questions, but I got to cut it off here um, because okay. I got to torture you and then get us a little bit of bonus time. Um, cool. So for folks not familiar, this is the Enlightening Round. Enlightening Round 2 Trolley Boogaloo Edition. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Uh. <laughs> so what I'm going to be doing here is I'm going to give you a list of trolley scenarios, I assume because you exist in the modern age that you understand the trolley problem. But for folks who just woke up from a hundred year coma, um, the trolley situation, right? There's uh, a lever and you can either pull it uh, for, you know, to switch it onto a different track or not. Um, so... Are you ready? I think so, yeah. I was expecting the real, not real. <laughs> ah, yes. We, we've switched it out for a little while, so it's a, it's right, a cool. bait and switch here for you. So <laughs> any prep you did is, is useless to you now. Uh, so first one up, classic. Would you pull the... Or, sorry, and let me say, it's not would, it's should, right? So I don't want to know psychologically what you think you would do. I want to know morally what you think you should do, okay? Mm -hmm. So... Should you pull the lever and save five by killing one? Yes. Okay. Should you then save five by, instead of just switching it on to another track, you have a machine that pushes somebody onto the track to save the other five? Yes. Okay. Um, should you save yourself by killing one? By killing one? Yes. Can I say it depends? No. It's, it's okay. Yes or no? No. No. Okay. Uh, should you save yourself by letting another person die? So in this situation, they're on the track. You're on the alternate track. You just don't have to pull the lever and they die. Yes. Okay. Should you, let's see, save your favorite body of artistic work by killing the artist no okay what if the artist is begging for you to kill them and save their art yes okay uh so should you save the only existing sentient artificial intelligence by killing one human <laughs> no no, okay. Um, what if it turns out that you are the sentient AI? Should you kill a human to save yourself? Yes. Okay. What if, uh, should you save one random non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. Should you save your personal favorite non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. Should you save an entire ecosystem by killing one human how big of an ecosystem you know a, a forest let's say a, a decently sized biome not a starting zone you know no no okay you have survived how do you feel <laughs> i'm thinking about all the dead people 
yeah all hypothetical people dead people you did or didn't save and <laughs> yeah uh-huh. fair enough uh, well thanks for playing along thanks for the chat um thanks for sticking around a little bit for a little bit of bonus um content uh before we get over to that do you want to let folks in the main show know where they can find your stuff online one more time yeah, so most of my writing is uh, on my Substack. It's uh, Y M E S K O H O U T. I can't even spell my real name. Crap. Yeah, just go to Substack. Follow the the link in the show notes. Sure. Uh, I also have the uh, contribute to Jesse Singles a newsletter. I'm on Twitter, and uh, I have a podcast that I almost sometimes re- release. I'm mm. sorry, guys. I'll, I'll be better about that. <laughs> They always say that. It's called the Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And thanks again, folks, for listening. And, you know, come join us over on Patreon and hang out for a little bit of extra time. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our newest monthly voidlings, Aria Curtis and Jason. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard, Neil Polzin, Jess- and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with the new co-host, Callie Wright, of the Queer Explaining Podcast. While you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter your preferred kind of anarchism, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 